Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. March 19th might be just another spring day in other parts of the United States, but here in New Orleans, it's St. Joseph's Day. The tradition of food altars dedicated to St. Joseph came to the Crescent City in the late 1800s with Sicilian immigrants. What was called Mikarem, or Mid-Lent by the Creoles, was a day when fasting was suspended and festivities abounded. Tony Marino's family were faithful followers of St. Joseph, and today he keeps the tradition alive at his home on Bourbon Street in New Orleans' French Quarter. We sit down with Tony to hear what it takes to pull off his special annual street party. And then, author Bricado of Bricada's Gelateria and Patisseria fame joins us to share his family's history and explain the special role Bricada's has always played in the St. Joseph Day celebration. And Laura Guccione joins us to reveal the amazing story behind the fancy dress balls that were once part of the St. Joseph tradition. And to explain the mystical tie between St. Joseph and the Mardi Gras Indians. We're building an altar and getting ready for the big day on this week's Louisiana Eats. New Orleans has always possessed the ability to transform itself. And never is that more apparent than on a certain day every year when a Bourbon Street balcony plays host to a life-size statue of St. Joseph. The stalwart patron of fathers bestows his blessings to the street below, where one local has created a slice of Sicily in the heart of the French Quarter. My name is Tony Marino, and I live on Bourbon Street, and I'm told I have a famous St. Joseph altar on Bourbon Street on March 19th. Tony Marino grew up in New Orleans' Irish Channel, a largely working-class neighborhood that dates to the 1800s. Early on, the area was populated by immigrants from Ireland and other European countries, many of whom brought with them their old-world traditions, traditions that have been passed down through the generations. In the Marino family, those customs centered around their Italian Catholicism. Every March, that Catholicism takes the form of a St. Joseph altar, 
created to celebrate the feast day of Jesus's foster father. The tradition dates to the Middle Ages when a great drought fell upon Sicily and the people prayed to St. Joseph for help. In thanks for the rains that subsequently came, the Sicilians created an altar to St. Joseph and filled it with the food they were once again able to harvest. Afterward, the food was distributed to the poor. The practice continues to this day, celebrated in Sicily and by New Orleanians of Sicilian descent. Usually topped with an image of St. Joseph, the three-tiered shrine also features flowers, candles, and of course, the main attraction, food. Because the celebration takes place during Lent, there's never any meat. But there's lots of delicious things to eat. From pasta milanese to stuffed artichokes and whole baked fish, you'll find fresh fruit, Italian breads fashioned in elaborate shapes, traditional Italian cookies and pastries, and always dried fava beans, also known as lucky beans, which attendees take with them to ensure good fortune in the coming year. Tony Marino, I'm so tickled to be able to bring your story to my Louisiana Eats audience. In your memory and in your mind, where does your affiliation with St. Joseph Altars go back to? Well, in fact, my great aunts, one of them was Mary Scavota. She had a bar on Magazine Street called Mary's Tavern, which is long gone. She also had another bar off of uh, Josephine Street uh, in near the Redemptorist Church. And I recall, and I've got some pictures of it, of, uh, of her altar behind the bar. And they would do the... Um, the tupa tupa with the kids, and I was, I always tease my brother. I was baby Jesus two years in a row. <laughs> well, that is a very special distinction. And for those who may not know the tupa tupa, what is that part of the ceremony? Well, what happens is the adults get some of the family members, the children, to dress up as Mary and Joseph and some of the saints in costume. And the, when the priest blessed the altar, we get to sit down before everyone else and eat. You want to get the kids fed first, of course. And so I've got actually photographs. And actually, there was a, a video that was done a couple of years ago of St. Joseph altars at home and also at the Beauregard Kai's house. And uh, there was an Italian uh, heritage thing that was done on parades and also altars. And that was featured. And there's actually a picture of me uh, in that video with my great aunt uh, who did this. What propels you to have your own St. Joseph altar? Well, I started doing it um, when I moved in the French Quarter, and I, I did it. I'm a lawyer now, and I think I graduated from law school in 1985. And when I passed the bar, I decided to do a thank you to St. Joseph, and I did a small altar at my house. Surprisingly, I didn't have a St. Joseph statue at the time. Oh. So, but my, my landlord had a another holy statue of some, we, we don't know who he was exactly, but we used him for a few years because we didn't have a St. Joseph statue. Now I have many. So that that's, Lord, decades and decades of St. Joseph altars on Bourbon Street. Well, the first ones were in Governor Nichols, and I would do those, just a small group and typically, we would do it on St. Joseph Day, but sometimes we may do it on the weekend. Now, I follow the practice of doing it on March the 19th, which is St. Joseph Day. How did you pull this off? Well, I did a lot of the cooking myself 
early on these times. But around 2009, I had the St. Joseph altar in my house, and I put a few tables outside on the sidewalk because it was getting pretty crowded. And it was too many people that I asked them to all file out side and go through the alleyway and come through the back to the kitchen door so they could all uh, basically get in line because you couldn't move in the house. And, and it's a fairly big townhouse on, on Bourbon. Uh, and I kind of jokingly said, well, next year we'll do it out on the street. I didn't know that I was, after this St. Joseph altar uh, in 2009, I was doing some renovation in 2009. And then on Mardi Gras Day, February 16th, I had a major fire upstairs during, after the renovation. And, of course, that was February 16th, and a month away would have been St. Joseph. And someone said, are you going to do the St. Joseph altar? I said, yeah, we're going to do it on the street like I predicted. I didn't know in the crystal ball that I'd be doing that. How in the world did you pull that off on the street? Well, we had over 500 people, about 550 people. And how we do it, we basically invite them by an email or text message. And we put them on the list because we kind of control the number of people coming in. And I... You know, I filed for an application with the city of New Orleans to close the 1000 block of Bourbon Street, and we have uh, volunteers who at both ends along with a policeman to monitor the crowd coming in. But thanks to Rosalie Haben, she does all the, the menus together. And we, we actually cut back the, the variety of foods because we're realizing we're cooking too many different things. Of course, the pasta milanese, we have a, we'll do that. We'll do stuffed artichokes, which a neighbor of my mother's actually makes those. Um, we get breads from different places. Uh, my wife at one time, she has passed away, but she actually made some breads one time. And the decorative breads yes, that adorn the, the fish altar. and the, uh, the heart and the artichoke shapes. And I actually, I store them uh, in my mom's freezer. But last year, her freezer went out and all the bread spoiled, so we had to hustle to get those things done. But we have a, a regular... Uh, vegetable lasagna. We'll have the pasta milanese. Uh, we'll have another dish that's in the cookbook. I mean, in the uh, Saint Joseph book that Carrie McCafferty did. A lot of those recipes are in the book. I'm pretty uh, proud of the fact that it's along there with uh, Emerald's recipes as well. So it's it's quite a feat. And we did have a lot of food left over, which we donated to Saint Jude's Community Center as well, as along with some canned foods. St. Joseph, he really works. Yeah. And he may, I always say it's St. Joseph, the worker saint, because he really knows how to make you work. This, um, this labor of love, it would be almost impossible to give it up, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Uh, like I said, I set up a, you know, a, a nonprofit several years ago, and hopefully um, it will continue. And uh, we're, like I said, we started planning. Uh, we'll probably start cooking um, maybe a, a week before and put things in storage and, and get it set up. But it all comes out of my kitchen, and uh, we have a big downstairs um, uh, dining room in parlor where we'll have an indoor altar as well as the altar outside. And you may know, Poppy, traditionally St. Joseph's Day is, is generally starts in the afternoon, around noon till about 3 or 4. That's what I grew up in. Where, But, of course, most people aren't going to be able to get off of work, so I decided to do it at 6 o'clock in the evening. And we start out um, uh, with opera singers on the balcony, and they play. We'll sing from 6 o'clock to about 7.30. Then we'll have the blessing by the priest, and we open it up to everyone to start eating. Manja, manja. I understand that the archbishop has made an appearance on your balcony upon occasion. Yeah, and I'll tell you, when we first did it, uh, Mitch Landry was the mayor. He had gone to Irene's altar to see it. And when he got to the entranceway where the police station officers were, 
they said, well, he's not on the list. And I said, I think you can let the mayor in. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tony, I would just love for everybody to be able to experience this. And going from my memory, here were the things that just really struck me on St. Joseph's Night last year. First of all, you had flags strung up and down from one side of the street to the other um, that were just blowing in this soft little breeze as the sun went down because I guess daylight saving time had happened. So there was just a little light in the sky still. And standing there on Bourbon Street, I, I said to my husband, gosh, I feel like I'm in Italy. It's amazing how the French Quarter you're able to transform it into Little Italy for that one special night. You're right. It always falls in just when daylight savings time starts again, so the lighting is perfect for us. And just around 7 or so, just before we do the blessing, it starts to get a little dark. So we have the light strung across uh, the balconies as well. Um, what about that lucky bean? Well, the lucky bean, um, you know, it's it's blessed by, by the priest, and— and everyone, some people say this is their, their big event to come to rather than going to Mardi Gras. And they always want to put that lucky bean in their purse or in their wallet. And the other tradition, of course, is if we have a threat of a hurricane, you take the St. Joseph bread and throw it out the back door to keep the, the hurricane away. So, Tony, what can you tell us about the statues? And what about that life-size St. Joseph on the balcony? I oh, think that was my favorite part. I'll give part. you some stories of both of them. Um, like I mentioned early on, when we first did it, we didn't even have a St. Joseph altar. My wife found a Saint jo- the smaller one on Magazine Street, and we have that in, in the front. And the, um, the large St. Joseph altar, actually, I've got from an antique shop on Royal Street, who was a friend, is no longer there, but it was around the corner— and I kept going in there and I said, Fred, you're never going to sell that to anybody but me. And I'm not going to pay you that price that you want. <laughs> and so we came for, up on a deal and it was pretty expensive. And it turns out uh, one of the employees there said that it came from uh, the left bank of France, of Paris. And I go, no, I think she, he meant the West Bank because it was from St. <laughs> Joseph Church, which is now closed. Uh-huh. And so I was able to get that statue, and it had to do, we had to do some uh, maintenance on it. And I, it, I keep it inside the, the dining room, and we bring it out just for St. Joseph altar, of course. They're so remarkable. That St. Joseph on the balcony, I truly felt like he was blessing the crowd, no matter who the priest was <laughs> and what he was doing. There was just something about St. Joseph's hand. I felt blessed. Yes. And it, he, he makes a presence there. In fact— uh, I've generally put it out there before uh, March 19th for a few days before as well. Um, and, of course, you know, we we have the opera singers, and they, they sing up there with St. Joseph as well. It's quite a scene, and um, I, I enjoy doing it. I'll tell you how we started doing opera was years ago a, a good friend and neighbor uh, manages a lot of musicians, and uh, Andre Duplessis, and she said she was coming to uh, the, the altar that night. Says, "Can I bring a friend from New York who sings opera?" And I said, "Well, she can come, but she's going to have to sing for her food." And she did. She sang, you know, opera pelico, and and I said, "I've got to have this for every other event thereafter." So now we have Bon Appetit, uh, and they're they're fantastic. 
Have you ever seen this tradition in Sicily? I have never been to Sicily. I've been to Italy twice, only to Venice. So, and they didn't seem to do it there. And I'm told, even from from Italians in New York, they don't do this tradition. It's more a Sicilian New Orleans tradition. It is the place where it seems like Saint Joseph and his altars are alive and well. Another reason to be so happy to be a New Orleanian, huh, Tony? Absolutely. Tony, thank you so much for the magic you bring every year to Bourbon Street and for coming to share the story with us here at Louisiana Eats. Thank you. Thank you, Puppy. That was Tony Marino, creator of the Bourbon Street St. Joseph Altar, presented March 19th. To find more information or donate, search for stjosephaltarnola.org. Also, check out the visual delight and insider recipes found in Carrie McCafferty's book, St. Joseph Altars, from Pelican Press. was St. Lucy, and what does she have to do with St. Joseph altars? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. To learn more and view the new video by award-winning documentary filmmaker Joe York, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Who was St. Lucy, and what does she have to do with St. Joseph altars? 
Santa Lucia, as they called her back in Syracuse, Sicily, where she became a martyred virgin back in 200 A.D., has always been the patron saint of the blind. That's because after she had dedicated her life to Christ, the pagan who she'd been betrothed to was very angry. According to legend, when her eyes were gouged out, God immediately replaced them. That is why statues of St. Lucy often show her holding a tray with two eyes situated on it. When it comes to St. Joseph's Day, St. Lucy is often honored with what's known as an eye pie. Sounds pretty yummy, huh? Actually, the traditional St. Lucy eye pie isn't meant to be eaten, but is a piece of what's often called fancy work by the devoted who assemble the altars annually. The same fig filling that goes into the kuchidati, those delicious fig cookies, is spread on a dough base with a pair of eyes crafted from dough shown peering out. That fancy work often includes imagery as diverse as St. Joseph's saw and hammer and Jesus' baby sandals. These elaborate pieces are often frozen and reused on altars again and again. If you're lucky enough to be in New Orleans on St. Joseph's Day, don't miss an opportunity to visit the altars. Lists of where altars can be found are always available in the Catholic publication, The Clarion Herald. I'm Poppy Tooker, and St. Joseph's Day always guarantees some good Louisiana Eats. of the 20th century, droves of immigrants, many of them Sicilian, decided to call the New Orleans French Quarter home. So much so that the back of the Vieux Carré gained the nickname Little Palermo. It was here in 1905 that the Angelo Bracado Gelateria and Patisseria was born. Today, more than a century later, the tradition of slow-churned gelato ice cream and hand-filled cannoli is still the order of the day. I'm Arthur Brocato, a third generation of Angelo Brocato's ice cream and confectionery. Led by Arthur Brocato, the shop is now located on Carrollton Avenue in Mid-City. But walking through the door is like entering a Palermo ice cream parlor, where, in the late 1800s, Angelo Bracado began learning his trade at the age of 12. The old-world tile floors, gently sloping archways, and shelves holding rows of apothecary jars brimming with colorful candies are joined at this time of year by a St. Joseph's altar. All the while, the staff bustles, creating a variety of traditional Italian cookies that will be found on altars throughout the city. What a treasure Bricados is to New Orleans and truly to the world. Y'all are doing some awfully special things over there. But, Arthur, I really wanted to share with the listeners the story 
of how it all began. Let's start off with your origin story. Well, it all began with my grandfather, Angelo Bracado Sr. The family emigrated to the United States in, in, in New Orleans, actually, uh, in the late 1800s, around 1877, 78. And he came from he came, Cephalu? They came from Cephalu. That's on the, the northern coast of uh, Sicily, right on the Tyrrhenian Sea, about 90 miles from Palermo. And uh, his father was a shoemaker. And they came to New Orleans, you know, like most other immigrants, to, for a better life. Uh, there was that move of, of population from Sicily here to Louisiana. And um, unfortunately, uh, when he was about three years old, his father passed away with yellow fever. Oh. And so his mother took the children back to Sicily because she had no one left here. But instead of going back to Cefalu, she went to Palermo. So they, he was raised most of his life in Palermo. And it was there that when he was 12 years old, he and his older brother Joseph, they went to work in the gelaterias and pasticherias in Palermo. And that's how they learned the trade as, a, as an apprentice when they were just 12 years old. So when does he decide to come back to the United States? Well, he came back in, in, after serving the Italian Navy and all that. He, his brother came first. And there was this wave of, you know, bringing the Sicilians in f- to cut sugarcane. So he came and met his brother. He came in, back in 1901, right after his first child was born. And, worked, and he and his brother worked in the sugarcane plantations in Donaldsonville. Then in 1905... My grandfather opened his own place. It was at 520 Ursuline Street. And so then they just moved they just to the moved. final location. Right. He moved to the 617 Ursuline, 615, 617 Ursuline Street. And in that location uh, is when he replicated the style of parlor that they had in Palermo with the tiles, the ceramic tiles, some floor to ceiling, the ornate cornices, and if you notice, they have the um, the archways are more Arabic. Oh yes, Middle and Eastern. all lighted. They're so right. beautiful. Right, because you know the Sicily was influenced by so much Arab Arabic influence uh-huh. over the years, and and Middle Eastern influence that you know that pervaded through the whole culture. So he modeled that after the places over there. It must have been such a swell thing to have that place and open it up. And so he's living upstairs with his new wife right. and basically his second family. Yeah, how right. how old was his youngest when she, she was just a little girl? She was only three months old. Wow, when three her mom old when her died. Mother died. Yes. So his sister helped raise the, the daughter and, and my grandmother after when he married my grandmother. They finished raising the the two older children as well. Amazing. What a story. And so what do you know about life down on Ursuline when everybody, when all the Bricottas were gathered there together? Do you have any memories? Surely you must. Oh, I have a lot of memories. (laughs) Well, tell me about what you recall. We grew up in the quarter, and we were kind of some, I guess, the— the tail end of the last families, especially Italian families, who grew up in the quarter, and um, the, you know we grew up with the Matassas and the Delfonsos and the Iannis and the whole gamut. <laughs> and uh, so, 
we have a lot of memories, a lot of memories of, uh, you know, the people there, the old businesses, the Italian businesses that were still still there, and uh, St. Mary's Italian Church and School uh-huh. and, and uh, Community Center, also the many St. Joseph altars that they had around the French Quarter, you know, as we, we were there when we were growing up. Author, I don't think that people in other cities appreciate and understand how important St. Joseph is to us here in New Orleans and his altars. What are your earliest memories of St. Joseph altars? Oh, as a, as a child, I remember going to, they had several St. Joseph altars in the neighborhood. Um, we had, there was the one just going from our house on Dauphine Street. There was on St. Philip Street, you had the Mother Cabrini Day Nursery. And the uh, Orlando family, they had a huge altar in the, in the front, right, by the, by the statue. Mm-hmm. And it was huge. But cook, all, it was all cookies and cakes. They didn't have any, and breads. They didn't have any cooked food there. Mm-hmm. But this thing was immense. And then you went down the next block, and you went to Montalbano's. And Montalbano's had an altar in the back. And it was like this old, like they were going into church. And on the, they had a sign on, on the building. It's called, it's called Angel of Peace. And you went in there and you could the smells you had of the olives and the cheese. And it's like when you go in the central grocery. Uh-huh. And so you went back there and the altar was all the way in the back. And it was really dark and dismal. But it was creepy. But, <laughs> but it was a really big altar. And he, his, his take, he used to say that the, the fave beans that he did was blessed by the Pope. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, so that was that was another altar. Then uh, my mother used to have an altar for a number of years at home in the house. Really? And then later years, she used to have it at the cathedral school uh, in the um, the parlor over uh, by the convent. Did for, your mother do this because of a special promise she made to St. Joseph? Uh, yeah. Well, one promise was... Uh, the first one she made was when uh, Angelo was in the military. Um, the others were when my youngest sister took sick, and so she had that, and she did that as until she died. You know, she once uh, she you make that altar. promise right. to Saint Joseph, he expects that altar right. every year. That's right. But there's always been for many years a Saint Joseph altar at Bracados. Yes, yes. My my grandmother and grandfather had an altar there for many years. We have some pictures of one back in the nineteen thirties. And uh, the huge altar with half the shop was on the six fifteen side there was uh, but the whole shop was side was an altar. So tell me, author, Give us a little behind-the-scenes look at how you all are helping to perpetuate this St. Joseph altar tradition in your own way. Well, we still make a small altar in the store in Carrollton. Uh, it's not nearly as big as it was in, in the French Quarter, but it's a small display to continue that tradition and our promise, you know, to do it as long as we in existence. You know, we we do a lot of cookies and things for different, you know, uh, churches and schools. A lot of people make, you know, people that would make the altars at home, they would make their own cookies, most of them, because, you know, that was part of the sacrifice. That was part of the promise to to, to the work involved. Author, um, 
there are so many cookies that go on the St. Joseph altar. Um, you know, aside from there's the fig cookies, there are the anise flavored cookies, there's the sesame cookies. But you, you brought some cookies to the studio. And this odd little cookie here, tell me about that. Well, they're called scadalina or as various names, Osa de Morte, which is bones of the dead. Scadalini is more also than skeleton cookies. Uh-huh. All right. And they're, uh, they're very brittle. And if you don't like clove, you won't like them <laughs> because they have clove and cinnamon. And the, and the gelatos, there are seasonal flavors with that too, Yes, right? we do a lot we, of different Doesn't seasons. St. Joseph have his own gelato? We have a, we, I created that um, before for our 100th anniversary. Uh, in 2005, uh, the St. Joseph's Chocolate Almond, and we stuck with that ever since. Well, author, this has been the most extraordinary treat, and I feel like we could sit here for another couple of hours, <laughs> and I still probably wouldn't get all 118 <laughs> years out of your head. <laughs> but thanks for making such a good effort at it with me, and thanks for Thank being you. on Louisiana Eats. Thank you so much, Poppy. It's a pleasure being here. That was author Bricado, third generation proprietor of Angelo Bricado Ice Cream and Confectionery in New Orleans. In addition to the traditional food altars in the 1870s, St. Joseph's Day in New Orleans meant carnival-style balls. Coming up next, historian Laura Guccione joins us to explain. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. ¶¶ 
Hi, my name is Laura Guccioni, and I am a researcher of New Orleans and Sicilian culture. Laura Guccioni is simply a fount of knowledge when it comes to Louisiana history. Her own family hails from Alia, Sicily, where she maintains close relationships with cousins and other family members today. That Sicilian heritage always shines through in her Louisiana history research. St. Joseph, whose feast day is celebrated on March 19th, has well-known ties to Sicily. He's their patron saint, the one credited with saving those island dwellers from starvation during the Middle Ages. Laura and her sister Anne built many a St. Joseph altar over the years, but it was in researching the history behind our local customs that Laura made a remarkable discovery, tying together St. Joseph's Day and New Orleans' fancy dress carnival balls. Laura took us back in time to help us understand today's traditions and those that didn't quite take hold. Laura, let's begin by explaining what is Mikahem. Okay, so Mikahem is literally mid-Lent in French, and mid-Lent was a huge holiday all over Latin Catholic countries. And New Orleans in the 1800s was still holding on to its Latin Catholic traditions, even though we were already a state of the Union from the early 1800s. So mid-Lent was the one day during Lent that people could dance, eat, drink, and do all those things that Lent you just couldn't do during Lent. Forbidden by the Catholic Church, because, of course, when you say Latin, we're talking about the French and the Spanish. And it shocked me to learn that St. Joseph's Day actually belonged to the Creoles and was a big Creole thing long before the Sicilians ever began their influence here in New Orleans. How did that begin? Tell me about this. What I believe happened is that there was already, Mid-Lent was being celebrated in New Orleans, which is literally like the day in the middle of Lent. And one year it must have fallen on St. Joseph's Day. So all of a sudden uh, you start, you see ads for these masked balls on St. Joseph's Day but they're referring to Midland and St. Joseph's Day. It's kind of confusing, but what I think happened is that in New Orleans and only in New Orleans, Midland becomes confused with St. Joseph's Day, and it just stuck. By the 1870s, they're starting to sell the idea of St. Joseph's Day here. Yes. Yes, there's an article. Actually, there's a few ads also that say, this is your chance. Come to New Orleans and see New Orleans as it is during Carnival I guess, but not during Carnival when it's not as busy. And they're saying March 19th, St. Joseph's Day. These balls are put on by the same people who do Mardi Gras. So they're definitely selling it, trying to sell St. Joseph's Day just like Mardi Gras had been sold. Well, in your research, you discovered the most interesting thing. And perhaps it was just this one year, but in 1887, Rex gets involved with St. Joseph's Day? Yes. And um, I had seen something written about this a few years back where they 
thought that the reason they had this ball was because Mardi Gras was so late that year. But no, I think it was because this was a first and only attempt of a carnival crew to have a ball on St. Joseph's Day, St. Joseph's Night. And it was Rex in full force, purple, green, and gold in the whole thing, huh? Yeah, and they actually costumed that night. The people who rode on the floats could wear their costumes, which was very strange because I don't think, no, they don't even have a costume ball on Mardi Gras night. So this was, there were a lot of things that that were just wild about this uh, night in 1887 with Rex because they had their ball at the French Opera House, the St. Joseph's Night Ball, which they never had a party there before. They allowed costumes in, which usually they're they're if I don't know if you're familiar with the Rex ball, but it's um it's black tie and tails. It's not costumed. So that right there, I believe, eighteen eighty seven, you see how important St. Joseph's Night was in the city that even Rex honored the holiday with a ball. There it surprised me that there was even a St. Joseph's Day ball put on by Ladies of Portuguese descent? Oh, yeah. Through the 1800s, there are, I have a stack of papers of ads that everyone get. I mean, it was, I have the butchers gave a ball, Portuguese. I mean, it just seemed like everyone. I mean, you name the organization. It was also a big night for fundraising. So a lot of the benevolent societies, Economy Hall, they said that that was their second biggest night of the year after after Car- Mardi Gras, that's when they made a lot of money. So, I mean, it was it was a big night for everyone. And these balls are being advertised because they're open to the public, different from the private closed balls of what we know now as the traditional Mardi Gras in New Orleans, correct? Yeah, most of these balls would be, I think a lot of them would be, the men would have to pay to get in and ladies were free. Of course, of course. At the same time that we're talking about, the late 1800s, this is when the great influx of Sicilians come in. Laura, do you think that there is something about those Sicilians and their ties to St. Joseph that create a situation where it becomes a Sicilian thing and not so much an everybody thing? Okay, so St. Joseph's Day becomes affiliated with Sicilians, but not till much later. In the late 1800s, you do see Italian organizations having balls on St. Joseph's Night, but they have nothing to do with, you don't see altars mentioned at all. So they are involved. And I think with the influx, there's a change. Suddenly the holiday is a more religious holiday. It's celebrated during the day, and there are altars, but that is, it's much later. Because the Sicilians, perhaps they might actually be sort of horrified by the irreverence of the fancy dress balls and such, because they're very serious about their St. Joseph, aren't they? Yeah. And and in fact, in one of the articles, they, they do say that St. Joseph, the patron saint of Italy, which isn't true, uh-huh. he's patron saint of Sicily, but not Italy. So they do say, oh, that's why they're celebrating this. And they were doing processions in the late 1800s, but also followed by a ball. So the first role of like St. Joseph's Day in New Orleans with the Italian 
community or the Sicilian community was more in line with what was happening already. And that it isn't until later that the altars really start appearing. And I don't know if it's because, I believe it's probably because people are coming from these towns that celebrate St. Joseph's Day in larger, you know, greater quantities than before. Because, I mean, uh, St. Joseph's Day in Sicily is not a huge, huge holiday. There are bigger saint holidays. I think it's that where these people are coming from that the altars really start to take off later. That St. Joseph altar tradition here in New Orleans is still so strong. Um, Would you tell me some happy memories of St. Joseph altars that you have or some of your favorite things about them? Oh, sure. So um, 2005, before Katrina, um, Father Ledoux at St. Augustine asked my sister and myself if we would like to build an altar there because they'd never had an altar. But there is, like, on one side of the church, there's a huge St. Joseph statue, which later I found out came from France in, the, I believe, the mid, mid-1800s. And um, so I was like, sure, you know, this is great. This is wonderful. So we did it. And it was after, you know, we fed the neighbors and it was all these neighbors came out. And I was like, you know, I'm going to ask them why the Indians come out on St. Joseph's night, because it's a question that, I, I mean, as far as I know, no one's ever really answered. And I asked all these older people who remember going into the homes of the older Sicilian families, you know, being invited into their homes to, you know, go view their altar and eat. And all of them said the same thing. They said, well, we think the Indians come out because the Sicilians were doing their thing that day. And I was like, I don't know. That just didn't seem right to me. And so through my research, I've figured it out and I've, I've answered my own question of why. Why is it? So it all leads back to these balls. So St. Joseph's Night you know, mistakenly called St. Joseph's Night is really mid-Lent in New Orleans. So everyone dressed up on St. Joseph's Day, Ah. mid-Lent. So I asked an older, a neighbor of mine who grew up in the Treme, and he's almost 90 years old, and I said, so, I said, Mr. Jacques, what did you, what do you remember about St. Joseph's Day when you were a kid? And his eyes lit up, and he said, oh, I'm going to tell you. He goes, it wasn't just... Indians that came out that night. It was skeletons, baby dolls. He goes, I wore my costume that day. And I was like, I had I had seen a few references of this in books, but no one's ever run with it. So I thought, oh, you know, it's probably nothing. And sure enough, when I started doing my research, it's right there that this was a big costuming holiday. And it was not just everyone came out. In costume, Yep. For St. Joseph's Day. Yep. And in my book that I'm working on, there's a whole cast of characters that would come out that aren't around anymore, which is it just makes this all more, it's just so, it's so exciting. Like who? <laughs> well, um, there was a group, I'm not going to tell you all of them, but there was like a group called the Jolly Boys. Uh-huh. And, and they were like a black Rex organization. Really? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It was just a big part of everybody's day, Italian or not right here in New Orleans. And I'm so glad you've been able to reveal some of this and demystify it for us. Thank you. It's always fun to see you and hang out. 
Laura Guccione, researcher of New Orleans and Sicilian culture. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 